0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Chad Cruiser. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word and science. Bless us with your presence. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Now, we looked at some things last night. We're going to move into enlarging the frontal lobe. We'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, And we're going to delve into more details about brain science. But one of the things we looked at last night was how God made nature for our happiness. Uh, It says, God who made the Eden home of our first parents so surpassingly lovely has also given the noble trees, the beautiful flowers, and everything lovely in nature for our happiness. We saw last night how uh, basically the more urban the situation that you live in, the more likely you are to have depression or psychosis. This was a massive study of 4.4 million people in Sweden. And they found that the more urban environment you lived in, and when they looked at America, a study was done in the United States looking at that, too. And the statistical rate of happiness goes from the city is the least happy place in America, and it statistically gets better and better and better as you get to smaller areas until you go to actual living out in the country. Those are statistically the happiest people in America. And once again, it says that God made nature for our happiness. Now, you think, well, that's nice for you, someone like you who grew up in the country. But actually, I grew up in the city. And my wife grew up in, well, she was born in Baghdad, Iraq. So she was from a large city in Iraq. Then she moved to Chicago, Illinois, which is also one of the largest cities in America. And uh, so we come from the city. But God made these things for our happiness. And we, you know, you think about even our first parents, Adam and Eve, living in the Garden of Eden. And one of the things we looked at in the gut-brain connection was that Adam and Eve were put in a place called the Garden of what? Eden. And the word in the Hebrew, Eden, means what? Pleasure. Pleasure. It was the Garden of Pleasure. So you would expect that the food God gave Adam and Eve in the garden would be the food that would make them the happiest, number one. And number two, you would also then expect that where he put them would be the place that would bring about the most pleasure. And guess what? Science shows God was right again, that the people who are in those environments are the happiest people. But not only that, he gave them a job, and part of their job, every human being, one of the things that uh, if someone is able-bodied, We're talking about, like, especially, and you see it even, like, it's it's a really serious thing with men, too. A man who is able-bodied and who is not willing to work is never fulfilled in life. He's never really happy because there's something about having a, a goal, a passion, something to live for. But something that we don't even necessarily have to do for a living but makes us happy anyway is the same thing that Adam and Eve were given to do, which was gardening. And wouldn't you know, researchers have put it to the test to find out, are there benefits to spending time even gardening. I know this seems a little off off of what we've been talking about, but you're going to see. Now, interesting, there's even physiological benefits. Like researchers have discovered, looking at a study on gardening, lowering the risk of dementia. What do we see here? Two studies were conducted on gardeners in their 60s and 70s and the effect on their risk of depression. And it was discovered that gardening lowered the risk of dementia by 36% and 47% compared to those who did not garden. So, gardening may lower your chances of coming down with dementia specifically by nearly half, which is very, very interesting. Uh, we're going to go on a little bit further. Gardening and mental health. This is a study in. U, the UK. In the UK, they have, they have something what, that is called allotment gardening. I don't know if they have this in Australia or not, but it, like in Germany, they also have this, where you have these spaces in the cities, where they have these uh, plots, relatively small, but you can still grow uh, quite a bit of uh, fruits or vegetables or you know, these, these you know, plant-based foods. You can grow them there, and they have them also in, in the UK. So they have these allotment gardens. And a study was done looking at 136 allotment gardeners before and after gardening. And then they looked at 133 non-gardeners, and they were the, what we would call the control group. So they were not gardening. So what do we find? It was seen that the gardeners had significantly better self-esteem, mood, general health, less depression, and anger than non-gardeners. Very interesting. So Ellen White told us that God gave us nature for our happiness, and research now bears that out very interestingly, uh, gardening and psychiatric disorders. A study was conducted on people with psychiatric illness to see the effect of horticulture classes Versus sheltered workshop training. So you either have a class on, you know, growing plants and so forth outdoors, or you have some kind of indoor class. What did they find? The classes were over the course of two weeks and there were 10 sessions. The people took what's called the DASS21 score or the Depression and Anxiety Stress Scale. So a psych- psychiatric test to see how was your mental state. And they found that the gardening classes had significantly more benefit when it came to depression, anxiety, and stress. So there really is something about getting into nature. Now, when it comes to the gut-brain connection, researchers are now looking into the, the benefits of beneficial microbes, beneficial bacteria that is found in the soil. Very interesting that they're now even testing this for levels of cancer-fighting ability. And so we're seeing that there are potential benefits to getting your hands dirty. Many people today, because we live in a hyper-sterile environment, right, where we want, we want our hands, we want constantly clean hands, and, and it is good to wash our hands. I'm not negating that. But the reality is, is getting out there in the soil, you know, we get afraid if our kids get their hands a little dirty in the soil, but the reality is it's beneficial for them. It is actually beneficial both for their immune system, potentially, and for their mental, you know, like their cognition, their happiness, and these kinds of things. So we may be afraid of these things, but we were made to get our hands in the soil. This this is a part of what we were literally made to do. So you would expect, actually, that there's some benefits from this, and sure enough, there are. Now, so here are some of the things we see. Some of the, So there are benefits to depression, to anxiety, to stress, all of these different things. Now, this is very fascinating. This was an American psychologist by the name of Benjamin Rush all the way back in 1812. And you may think, why would I care what a scientist thought over 200 years ago? I mean, that's totally irrelevant, you might think. But notice what he says in conjunction to what we have just seen with the new studies that have come out. So these have been... Uh, you know, studies as of late, meaning modern studies. But notice what happened. What psychologists noticed over 200 years ago. Notice what he said. Now, this wording is different than we would use today, obviously, different time period, different wording. But he says, it has been remarked that the maniacs... Now, that would be just a term for people with severe psychiatric disorders. He wasn't putting people down or mocking them. It was just what you would call people with severe psychiatric disorders. It has been remarked that the maniacs of the male sex in all hospitals who assist in cutting wood, making fires, and digging in a garden... And the females who are employed in washing, ironing and scrubbing floors often recover, while persons whose rank exempts them from performing such services, meaning the wealthy people who, oh, my son could never be out in a garden. He could never be chopping down trees. Not, not this low menial tasks, you know. It says that the people who were out doing these things, that they would recover while persons whose rank exempts them from performing such services languish away their lives within the walls of the hospital or some psychiatric center. Isn't that Interesting. That this is not something that we have just discovered, but it was noticed long ago that people with severe psychiatric disorders, one of the great things you can get them to do is get them out in nature, interacting with nature, gardening for the men you know, chopping down trees and building fires and doing these practical things can actually help reverse, in some cases, their psychiatric disorders. And this is what the research is now telling us. Now, this is gardening and BMI, which stands for body mass index. Basically, it's an equation that has to do with your height and how much you weigh. And uh, so lower BMI uh, within, give, within a healthy range is healthier. And then, you know, too high, you get in the overweight and in the obese range. Well, uh, body mass index and it's an equation, like I said, having to do with your height in association with your weight. And I just said it backwards, but you get it. Salt Lake City, Utah, has a community gardening program. They, have a, they, they did a study with 198 community gardeners, were compared with different groups of people, neighbors, spouses, and siblings. And the gardeners had significantly lower body mass index than the control groups in the study. Now that makes sense, because you're out in you know, working, and so you're using your body. But also, when you grow food, what do you want to do with that food? You want to eat it, right? You want to eat it even more than you want to do when you buy it from the grocery store, right? because you grew it and so you're excited and even if you don't like that particular vegetable as much as some other things you want to eat it because you you grew it right and so you're more likely probably to eat more healthy food what we would call whole food than you are just getting it at the grocery store so let's look at this though gardening and addiction gardening and addiction Gardening is being used in the state of Illinois, where my wife spent a good chunk of her life, to help women who have been struggling with addiction, and it seems to help them fight the urges to go back to their addiction. Now, why would that be? Because people who are addicted, partially, one of their great problems is they're not happy. If you were really happy, would you need to smoke? Would you need to drink? Would you need to do drugs? No, if you were happy. And yet doing this gardening is making these people happier. We saw that it could increase self-esteem, lower levels of anxiety and depression. You put all that together, this is another factor that helps people with mental problems, even addictions for that matter. And a study of over 800 people was done, and it found that individuals who garden had better energy levels, optimism, and zest for life... Than non-gardeners. I mean, how many things do you know of, of, know of, that have this many psychiatric benefits? And isn't it interesting that this is what God created man to do in the very beginning? This is really incredible to me. And you know, it's taken many years to do the real research to see it, but now we know it's the case. So we're looking at the healing garden. Scores of studies have been conducted on gardening and how it affects health. So what we've just seen, kind of summing up what we've just seen, is that gardening has benefits on levels of anger, anxiety, body mass index, mental function, depression, fatigue, life satisfaction, meaning happiness, loneliness, mood, self-esteem, tension, and vigor. Do you want... Some of those benefits in your life, right? I mean, like, who doesn't want what these, these studies have found? You know, we all want it. But one of the things is, is, as a society, we've gotten further and further away, by and large, from nature. And as a result of it, we're getting further and further away statistically from being significantly happy. I showed you in the United States, about 33% of Americans say that they are happy. So that means two-thirds of people in the United States are unhappy. We saw then in the the country of Australia that nearly 50% of people in Australia over the course of their life will have some psychiatric disorder. And so we realize that people are struggling. I mean, this is a very wealthy country where you have fantastic weather. And why would it be that 50% of people nearly come down with some kind of psychiatric disorder? It's because money and a beautiful place to live don't guarantee happiness. They don't guarantee it. The reality is, is living the life that God intended us to live, and one of the things he intended us to do is spend time in nature, specifically even in gardening. And, uh, you know, so look at this. If God knew that gardening was so beneficial, why didn't he just tell us? Maybe he did, right? So... Exercise in the open air should be prescribed as a life-giving necessity. And for such exercises, there is nothing better than the cultivation of the soil. Let patients have flower beds to care for or work to do in the orchard or vegetable garden. As they are encouraged to leave their rooms and spend time in the open air, cultivating flowers or doing some other light, pleasant work, their attention will be diverted from themselves and their sufferings. It will be beneficial for them. You know, my wife and I, we grew up in the city, we're in the city all the time, and we love traveling around, visiting with people, presenting and ministering to people, working with people who have, you know, uh, questions about the Bible, working with people to help reverse diseases like, you know, diabetes, you know, we love to... on heart disease and, and reversing depression, and these things can be done. Uh, but you know, we also personally wanted to spend more time in nature, and so for years we wanted to do it. But the Lord opened the door for us to do that just a couple years ago. We bought some land, and uh, just give you a look. So we bought some land, and we spent last summer uh, cutting down the trees. We happen to be in an area you'll see here with absolutely no mountains. We have the, you know, we're in the absolute flatlands of Michigan, so you can see here we get above the trees. It's totally flat there, right? I mean, we're next to the national forest there, and so we can hike off into the national forest. I spent the tree with Fadia felling trees and cutting them down, and, uh, you know, it's a lot of work to do all that, but we thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was just, it, it was an incredible experience. So here's the thing, though. My wife and I... We, you know, there was no house there, it was just trees, and so we had to cut the trees down, so we had to sleep somewhere, so we got a tent, and just, we literally slept on the land, and there's no toilet, no running water, so we'd have to bring jugs of water, and you have a shovel for the toilet, and, um, you know, it's wonderful that I have a wife who could handle those kind of things, you know, and... Uh, on top of that you know we you hear animals at night you hear the coyotes howling and you hear the uh actually are literally within a hundred probably not even a hundred meters from our tent uh there our friend our neighbor has a, a camera where it takes pictures of moving animals you know and he sends me a text and he's like it's a bear and he says this, this, this guy was right by you guys recently, you know. And uh, just down the road from us, we saw a large mother bear with her two cubs. And uh, we know they're out there. Um, and we hope they don't maul us while we're out there. You know, we're hoping to avoid that. But it's such a blessing. You know, for a guy like me, I mean, I'm a video, you know, I'm into video production, produce documentary films, pretty impractical. You know, I mean, I can make films, that I know how to do. But when it comes to, like, the practical world, I don't know a ton about it so i basically had to learn out there you know i had to cut these somebody taught me how to cut the trees down because you can literally kill yourself very easily doing that uh, but you know what like it makes you feel like a man cutting down trees you know like you know it's like a bunch of sissies who you know we've never done these things but you do it and you're like ha, ah, this feels good you know super workout and i'll tell you what you want to get in good shape come spend a couple months cutting trees down with me. You're getting some fantastic shape. I mean, like, you'll use every muscle in your body, I guarantee it. It's incredible, actually. But uh, so we just, we had a fantastic time doing that. Uh, Spiritual benefits. I pray more out there than I pray anywhere, partly because every tree that I cut down, I realized could kill me. And so I'm praying that God will spare my life with the next tree. Literally, I'm praying that. And uh, just a great experience that doing something that, you know, I'm, I, To be honest, I've been interested, even before I you know, became an Adventist or whatever, I, just the idea like, of, of being more independent. I love that idea. That's just, to me, there's something kind of, I don't know, something you, to look up to. But I share these things. It's been a great blessing to us. And we're told, you can see it within Scripture. There's evidence within the book of Revelation, the book of Matthew, that the further and further toward we get toward the end of time, the more and more we need to be considering when do we, personally, need to start moving to the country. And you may also say, Chad, but, but I, I'm not interested. In I don't like that. Um, the reality is, is we're told that God desires that we would love to see the things of beauty in nature. Because some of us aren't used to liking nature. We're afraid of nature, like Lot in the Old Testament. You may remember Lot, true story, it's right in the Bible. Lot was told to flee from What city? Sodom, right? He was, you know, he was just on the edge of Sodom, but then he moved into Sodom. He was told to actually take his family. The only two he could get to come ultimately, because they were pulled by the angels, were him and his two daughters and his wife. Ultimately, his wife turns into a pillar of salt. But ultimately, the, he's told to flee to the mountains. And do you remember what Lot said? He said, no. Listen, his city was just destroyed by fire and brimstone, and he's told to flee to the mountains, and he said, no, I don't want to go. Do you remember why he said he didn't want to go to the mountains, what it says in the, in, in the book of Genesis? He said, because a wild animal is going to kill me. He literally said, you can go read it, go read it in Genesis. He, he was afraid that God was going to send him out into the wilderness to get killed by animals. And uh, the point is, you may be like me. I know. So we we travel all the time and we're in cities often. But we had lived for a bit in South Dakota at a health institute uh, called the Black Hills Health and Education Center. One of the most beautiful spots on the planet. It's incredible. But nevertheless, when I would go back there, we were doing some video work for them in in between all of our travel. And when I would go on a hike, I know that there in South Dakota they have what we call mountain lions. And mountain lions can full-on kill you, and you know it. These are large cats. They, what they do is they, they hide up in trees. Humans and animals like deer have, an, have a habit of never looking up in the trees. I mean, you might every once in a while, but we have a habit of hiking, watching our feet, looking around like this. But we typically don't look up in the trees. And so the mountain lion hides in the trees, and when you're not looking, it jumps down, bites your neck, and it takes you down and kills you. And so it does that with deer, it does that with other animals, and it does it with humans. Or they just run after you because you can't run fast enough anyway. They just get you that way. But the, the point being, when I would go on these hikes, after being in the city for a while, I would go for a hike, and as I would be all alone, I'd be hiking. And if I heard like a snapping twig, I was, I was like, you know, just, I feel like there's a mountain lion. There's got to be a mountain lion here, right? And then, after being out there, after being a few days and going on those hikes, I'm totally at peace out there. So I totally get it if you're someone that's afraid of nature. It's natural for us who grew up in the city, but there is such a blessing in being out there that you can only understand once you've tried it. And you may not like it right away, the first day, second day, maybe a few weeks you don't like it. A friend of ours, uh, the husband wanted to move to the country and the wife wasn't interested. We have a store, I don't think you have it here, called Target. But it's like, I don't know, any kind of, do you have Target here? shame on me. You have Target. You know what I'm talking about. So, so uh, the wife's like, man, I don't want to be so far away from Target. You know, so she, she liked Target, you know, and, or pick your store, whatever it is. But the point being, they have found it to be such a blessing for the husband and wife. They're three little, uh, two little boys and a girl, right? Yeah. Two little boys and a girl. And long story short, there's such a blessing in it. And we're finding more and more, at least in the States, more and more people are doing it and finding just a great blessing in it. And it's cheaper to live out there, by the way, typically. Uh, but nevertheless, this is not a presentation totally on, on living in nature. But consider, pray about it. Pray about it when God would have you to go. Because the closer we get toward the end of time, we want to be open, open to the Spirit of God working on our hearts to go where God calls us to go. So, on to what we've talked about a scientifically proven way to increase brain volume. This was a study done at the University of Illinois in 2016. Now, six, sorry, yes, you're right, 2006. So this is a few years ago now. And what did they find? This is very interesting. Is it possible to increase brain volume, the size of people's brains? Now, actually, before I even tell you, As we get older, statistically, as you get up into your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you have a progressive decline in the volume of your brain. Your brain actually statistically atrophies or shrinks as you get older. So here's a study of people who were previously sedentary, meaning they were non-exercisers. And what did they do? They were ages 60 to 79. So this is not young people. Unless they're Seventh-day Adventists and may live, because some some of you may know this, some of you may not, Seventh-day Adventists are the longest living people on the planet. So when they're 60s and 70s, they're just getting started, right? (laughs) So these people, you know, uh, they they live, you know, they're the longest living people. This is what, you know, when they looked at the blue zones around the world, you had the Okinawans, you had the Sardinians, you had certain certain group from Costa Rica, and then you had the Seventh Day Adventists. The only group that's increasing in longevity are the Seventh Day Adventists. You know, National Geographic has done study stories on this, and uh, interestingly enough, so these people ages 60 to 79. Uh, what do we see? They took these people who were previously non-exercisers and they put them on a cardio exercise program over the course of six months. What does that mean? They put them on an exercise program, I think initially it was simply walking by getting up their heart rate for these people, getting just simply walking, getting up their heart rate over the course of six months. Now, the control group did non-aerobic toning and stretching. So they're doing some, you know, maybe kind of stretching exercises and so forth uh, to be the control group. And they did MRI scans on their brains. Now, what was the result? The result was the group that did the cardio exercise program. Remember, cardio has to do with cardia, your heart, and so getting your heart pumping. The group that did the cardio exercise program they ended up increasing their frontal and temporal lobe volume in the experimental group. So meaning, you can actually physically increase the size of your frontal lobe by getting out and doing what? Cardiovascular Cardiovascular exercising. So, and think about this, by the way. What is one thing you're not doing while you're spending a lot of time on your phone or on a computer or playing video games? You're doing less exercise, right? So that is obviously one of the factors that is impairing. You look at children today. When I was a kid, what did we I mean I, what did we do when I was a child? We were out on the street every day. We were riding our bicycles. We were uh, running around with friends, playing games, but it was outside most of the time. You'd climb trees, you'd do whatever, but it was outside. But many times today, people are afraid to let their children outside, and I understand. I understand it's, it, it can be scary, you know, uh, but, but the reality is getting out and getting exercise is one of the best things for children, one of the best things possible. And we're told, this, this almost sounds crazy, but we're told in some of those books like Education that it would be well for our children not to go to school until the ages of 8 or 10, but rather they should be out as free as lambs. Now that sounds crazy. You think 8 or 10, your kid's going to be way behind before they go to school. You're right. So somebody actually put it to the test. They thought, well, let's try it. Let's have our children. We'll have some of the kids go to school, and uh, they'll learn to read. They'll learn all their you know, the early-on arithmetic and all this. And then we'll have children who wait until they're 8 or 10 years old to actually go and learn all this stuff. Well, you know what they found? So the, the one kids, you know, they may be doing more practical stuff. So when they put it to the test, you know what they found? That when your children have not gone to school until about the age of 10, when they finally do go, guess what? They're behind. Go figure. Well, you would expect that, right? But then what they found is very rapidly, those children, they caught up to the other children. And then you know what they found? That they actually surpassed the other children in their, in their educational skills. Isn't that interesting? When God asks us to do something, he's asking it for our good. For our own benefit. Very, very interesting. So getting kids out in nature is one of the best things. And, and you see in certain countries. I think it's like, uh, I think it's over in, uh, I want to say Sweden. Uh, you see they have these schools where they call them something like uh, forest schools or something like that. I, I wish I could remember the exact name. But, or Finland, it's fin- maybe Finland. It's one of the cutest things. They, they literally, for the first few years of school, these little children just play in the forest. That's all they do. And you'll see the, they will literally climb way up. I mean, these are little munchkins, and they will climb way up in the tree. And you'd think you'd be terrified, like, whoa, 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 get them down. And, 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 the, and the, the interviewer is asking the teacher, aren't you afraid for that child? And they're like, oh, no, no, they know. They know they're, they're, they're very good at this stuff because they're very practical. They, I mean, these kids have skills, right? Uh, and they learn the hands-on play. And it's actually very beneficial for their brain, so much so that they end up doing, like, meaning, like, like I said, at least, at least when it was looked at in the past, they end up doing better in the long run, potentially. Not initially. Initially, they're a little behind, but they catch up because their brains have developed so well in, con- in connection with this. So back to where we are. So those who got the exercise, it increased their frontal and temporal lobe volume in the experimental group. So... Um, yeah, just to pl- clarify where I was just a moment ago, that uh, I don't know specifically the studies in Finland, but when they've looked at it in other situations, they have seen the kids who do it later end up doing better. So I, I don't know about Finland specifically. But nevertheless, so let's go on to the next one. So what about the group that was doing stretching? Did they find uh, a, a cognitive benefit? Well, there, there was no increase in, in or at least in the, in the physical size of the brain, in the stretching and toning group. Now, that doesn't mean you should never stretch. I mean, stretching can have its place, but it's not so, it's not so much for the, the mental benefit or the brain benefit, I should say. So you want to keep your brain strong. You need to get out and do some aerobic exercise. Isn't that great? Maybe, maybe not, but it's at least good to know that there is hope, right? Right? That if you have been sedentary, you can choose to m- take an effort to go out and, uh, you know, one of the things I do is, uh, not always, and depending on how the weather is, you know, I sometimes, even as part of my devotions, I'll go for a walk, I'll have a bunch of cards with Bible memory verses and I'll walk and I'll go over and I'll, I'll go over these memory verses and I'll meditate on what they mean and you can pray out there. Uh, so you can even do it during those times, you know, or you could do it before work, before breakfast or what have you, uh, or after work or during lunch break or whatever it is, there are places, there are times where we can get out and use our bodies, thus keeping our brain healthy. Keeping our brain healthy. So very, very important. And remember, the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. So if we're doing these things, we can actually help strengthen our brain both physically and spiritually. So get your kids out, too. We're talking older people, but also get your kids outside, getting them exercise, because if they're just wasting their life away on a screen uh, and and devoting hours and hours every day to that, it's really potentially hampering their spirituality. Now, I want to move on to something called mirror neurons. I'm guessing some of you have heard about mirror neurons. Now, a study was done back in the 1990s in a city in Italy that is famous for a certain kind of cheese, uh, maybe you can guess the, the kind of cheese. The city is named Parma. <laughs> Parmesan cheese, obviously. And th- But that has nothing to do with the study, in case you think I'm going to talk about cheese. I'm not. It just so happens it was done in this city. And this particular study, researchers, scientists, were scanning the brains of monkeys, and they were looking at what would happen when a monkey would reach out and take a peanut and eat it. A certain portion of their brain would would fire when they were doing that. So a certain portion of the brain would fire, and and they noticed that, and they, they could see, okay, every time they grab a peanut, put it in their mouth, and eat it, a certain portion of the motor cortex would fire. Well, then, scientists are kind of like the rest of us, right? And that when food is sitting around, what do people have a tendency to do? Eat it, right? And so the Monkey is there, sitting there, and they're hooked up. You know, their brain is being scanned. And and the researcher reaches out, grabs a peanut, and sticks it in his mouth. And the monkey's watching the scientist. And lo and behold, this was an accident. They weren't trying to find this out. As the monkey watched the scientist eat the peanut, the same brain region fired as when the monkey itself was eating the peanut. Meaning that the monkey watching the scientist eat a peanut, registered in the monkey's brain as if he were the one actually eating the peanut. Does that make sense? So scientists accidentally discovered this, and so they came up with a phrase for this called mirror neurons. That we have these brain cells that fire when we're watching something take place as if we're the one actually doing what we are watching. Does that make sense? Mirror neurons. Now. This is fascinating to me because Jesus himself gave us insight into this 2,000 years ago. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit, what? Adultery. 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 But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her. In his what? In his heart. So Jesus said, when, when, you, when a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committing adultery already within his heart. Now, a little side note, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Scriptures, the, the word heart is synonymous with the mind. We see that in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, which says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? So meaning, the heart and the mind are synonymous in the Bible. And so, what do we see here? Jesus says, when you look at a woman to lust after, you're committing adultery in your heart. Now, think about that. Jesus recognized that when when someone's looking and lusting after somebody, all of the emotions, all of the physiological pathways begin as if they were actually doing the same thing, the same hormones that begin to surge through the body when someone is in the act begin to take place when somebody just watches and goes over it in their mind, right? It is a mirror, just like we saw this morning. Sin is not just a spiritual thing, although it is spiritual. It is also physiological. It's part of us. It's part of our our endocrine system, our hormones, and these kinds of things, and it is a part of our brains. Now, King David, did he know what it was like to lust? Yeah, right? He knew what it was like to go on the internet and see things he shouldn't be looking at, right? He was up on the rooftop of the palace, and there's a woman up on her rooftop doing what? She's bathing. My wife happens to think she might have been doing it on purpose in front of the king. I don't know. You can ask her later, but uh, we we don't know for sure. But maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Maybe she was trying to capture the attention of the king. I don't know. Maybe not. But either way, he saw her and he was attracted. And uh, long story short, he has her brought in and they come together. And long story short, there's a baby and there's a whole process to the deal. Uh, But long story short, David at some point, recognizing You know, recognizing the importance of what you look at. It's interesting, this is not David himself, but Lamentations says in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 51 My eye affects my heart. Interesting. My eye affects my heart. What you look at affects your mind and your emotions, right? My eye affects my heart. And David himself did say this next verse in Psalms 101 verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave or adhere or stick to me. Psalms 101 verse 3. So if I set no wicked thing before my eyes, it will not stick to me. The things that stick to me are the things that I look at and the things that I think about. If I'm not looking on these things, they don't become a part of me. And so, you know, there's a, there's a little children's song that parents use to help teach their children about neurology. And it goes like this, Be careful little eyes what you see. Right? Do, do they have that song here? Okay, be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? We don't think about it as neurology. But the reality is, is like if, if a child doesn't watch it, they're not as likely to be tempted by it. So just to give you an example, you don't need all of this science that we've just looked at to tell you about mirror neurons. You can see it in a four or a five-year-old boy. If a four or five-year-old boy goes to a movie that happens to be a fighting movie, what does he come out of the theater doing immediately? Right? Yes or no? Everybody knows that. That the little boy, because his frontal lobe is not fully matured until about the age of 25, he will immediately come out just repeating what he just saw. Right? Mirror neurons, right? But here's the thing. You think, Chad, but I'm a man. I don't come out of the movie theater doing this, right? Right? I'm sure you don't, because everybody would look at you like you're ridiculous, right? But here's the thing. A man watches a fighting movie, and he comes out of the movie theater not swinging his arms, but he feels a bit tougher than he did before he went in there, doesn't he? It's true, right? He's no tougher than he was, actually. He's a little less healthy. He's been sitting around for two hours doing nothing, right? Didn't help him a lick, right? But he feels like it did. Don't live your life through other people, right? Live your own life. But here's the thing. So setting wicked things before our eyes negatively affect us, and they register in our brain as if we are the one doing the thing that we are watching. Does that make sense? That's why it's so dangerous to watch things that are not healthy. To look at things like pornography, we are joining ourselves unto these things. It's becoming a part of who we are. And that's why Jesus warned us about this. And we talked about the plasticity, the changing of the brain. That our brain is changed by what we think about, right? Um, whether it's, you know, the London cab drivers. And somebody came to me here after the m- first message, and they said, ah, that brought back memories. I was a London cab driver. So I told him, you must have a massive hippocampus, right? <laughs> so he's got this massive hippocampus, and all of us have the stunted ones if we weren't there. now. Maybe you have a big one, too, from a great memory, but nevertheless. So thinking about a passage in the book of Isaiah, and this next passage, it, it, it kind of goes where you don't think it's going to go. It starts off in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 14. It says the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? This is a verse where if you don't know what goes on after it, you might think this is saying who's going to go to hell. But it says, who is going to dwell in the devouring fire? Who's going to live in everlasting burning, everlasting flames? So you're thinking it's probably going to say, wicked people, evil people, the scum of the earth. But it says, the people who will dwell in fire, who will they be? It says, who goes there? Who can dwell in the devouring fire? He that walks righteously. What? What? He that and speaks uprightly, speaks right things, despises the gain of oppressions, meaning you're not trying to oppress people to take their money from them. He that shakes his hand from the holding of bribes. Somebody tries to give you money to bribe you into doing what is not right, and you shake your hand, you won't have anything to do with it. He that stops his ears at the hearing of blood. He doesn't want to hear anything that has to do with evil. And shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Who is going to dwell in the devouring fire? Who will dwell with everlasting burnings? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that our God is a consuming what? Fire. And so if you're going to dwell in the presence of God and not be destroyed, who are you going to be? Well, it's going to be those who walk righteously, speak uprightly who shake their hand from taking bribes and, and don't listen to evil things. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Right? There's a father up above, right? So we ought to be careful what we see, careful what we listen to. There's certain music, there's certain television programs, all of these things that can negatively impact us. Now... I figured it was the case. I didn't have any scientific research to back it up initially. I figured that, okay. so what we look at registers in our brains as if we're the one doing it. But I figured it must also be true that what we read registers in our brains as if we're the ones doing what the book characters are doing. Well, guess what? It turns out they did a study on that. Reading and mirror neurons. UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, researchers show that specialized brain cells known as mirror neurons activate both when we observe or look at the actions of others and when we simply read sentences describing the same action when we read a book these specialized cells respond as if we are actually doing what the book character is doing so you read about some book character and uh... it registers in your brain as if you're the one actually doing it Now. If you think about okay, there's you know there's books about immorality like these these love novels like there's stores in the United States with like these love novels like a guy with no shirt on with a big chest like holding some woman with not enough clothing on and uh, you know it's there these love novels and it's like it's like written pornography basically you know there's not the picture in there but you get the picture from reading the book right and so reading that registers in your brain as if you're the one actually doing it right. And so, but that's the bad side of the equation. But what about the good side of the equation? Could it be that God, who created us and our physiology, recognizing that the world would be so corrupt that there would be temptation and enticements all around us, gave us something to spend time in daily so that as we would look at it, as we would read it, as we would think about it, it would change our brains so that what we would focus on there would register in our brain as if we weren't the ones doing what our Lord and Savior was doing. Think about that. God has given us something to spend time in every single day so that our brains will be changed. He's given us the Bible, right? He has given us the word of God. And it's interesting because we, we call these, researchers call these mirror neurons, mirror neurons. And notice what the word of God says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. We talked about that this morning. We think in the world we're free, but the reality is is Jesus is the only one that can set us free. Sin has us captives. But Jesus sets us free when the Spirit of of God comes into our life. It says, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with an unveiled face. When we come to Jesus, before we come to Jesus, it's like we have a veil over our faces and we can't see clearly. We can kind of see, but we can't see clearly. But when we come to God, God takes the veil off of our face and seeing, it says, seeing the glory of the Lord as in a what? As in a mirror. Interesting. Seeing the glory of the Lord as in a mirror are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. So notice, as we behold God, as we look at His character, as we spend time in the Word of God, we see God, we see Jesus, we see His love, we see His compassion, and as we behold it, it's like we are looking in a what? A mirror. Isn't that interesting? Did God know about mirror neurons... From the beginning. Absolutely. He uses the same terminology in his word. That this mirror, when we look in the Bible, it is like a mirror to us. And as we look at him, when you first look in a mirror, we're, we're dirty because we're filled with sin. But as we look in this mirror and we look at Jesus, number one, he forgives us. But not only that, the more we behold him, the more we begin to look like what we're looking at. Our character becomes more like Jesus. This is what he's given us his word for, to save our souls eternally, but to cleanse us. And it says in John chapter 15, verse 3, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto. We are cleansed by the word of God. And check this out. This is so very powerful. Not the first part. The last part of this quote is very powerful. I was reading a book some years ago called The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains. And notice this. In in 2009, researchers used brain scans to examine what happens inside people's heads as they read. They found that readers mentally simulate each new situation encountered in a narrative. Details about actions and sensation are captured from the text and integrated with personal knowledge from past experiences. The brain regions that are activated often mirror those involved when people perform, imagine, or observe similar real-world activities. But this is what I want you to, don't miss this part. This is powerful. Deep reading, says the study's lead researcher, Nicole Spear, is by no means a passive exercise. The reader becomes the what? The book. The reader becomes the book. And friends, Jesus was called the Word of God. Jesus spent time daily meditating. Actually, it prophesied in Psalms 40 that he would meditate day and night. And then then in Hebrews chapter 8, it tells us that was the prophecy of Jesus, that he would meditate day and night on the Word of God. Jesus meditated day and night. Not only was he the Word from the beginning, because he spoke the world into existence, but he was the living Word of God when he came to earth. And we have an opportunity to become like Christ by spending time in this book. The Bible says in Psalms 119, verse 11, uh, and verse 9, it begins in verse 9 by asking the question, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And the answer comes back by taking heed thereto, by paying attention thereto, according to your word. And then what does it say in verse 11? It says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against me. So it says that when God's word is hidden in our heart, when we bring back the promises to mind that we can find victory over sin, and we just said that Jesus said in John 15, verse 3, you're clinging through the word. We need this word to be changed. This is what we discover in Scripture. And I want you to notice this. How are we born again? Peter, who needed to be converted while he was walking with Jesus for three and a half years... And Jesus said to him, Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. What do you mean? Jesus has been wa- Peter has been walking with Jesus for years, and Jesus said, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And then Peter at the cross is converted. And then he writes a book called 1 Peter to tell us how to be converted. So how do we do it? How does that happen? How does conversion take place? He tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again... Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the, what? Word of God, which lives and abides forever. We are born again by the Word of God. But not just any Word of God, not the book that you read when you were a kid, but the Word that lives and abides forever. The Word of God that is with you every single day, the book, the Word of God that you read every day of your life, that you don't miss time because you know it is the life-giving Word of God. It's a necessity. It's not an option as a Christian. It is the Word of God that lives and abides forever. I I didn't think it was important to read the Bible back before I was in a church that was pretty much into music and dancing and singing and so forth. Uh, It was kind of a charismatic church. And um, my mom asked me when I was going there, she said, Chad, do you read your Bible? And I said one of the dumbest things I've ever said in my life. I said, no, I don't need to read the Bible. Because back in the Dark Ages, this is my ridiculous logic, I said, back in the Dark Ages, they couldn't even own a Bible. And yet they were still Christians. Do you know why that was so dumb to say? Because in the Dark Ages, they were willing to die to have a Bible. Yes or no? When the Catholic Church had hidden all the Bibles and then chained them to the monastery and only the priests could read them, the people that had them would die, meaning people would write them out pages at a time and share them secretly because they knew they'd be burnt at the stake from the church if they were caught with them. And so I said one of the dumbest things I've ever said in my life. And, uh, but then, praise the Lord, I met an atheist who did not believe in God. And I did believe in God. And he said, so you're a Christian? I said, yes. He said, um, tell me the Ten Commandments. I, didn't, I was so ignorant. I hadn't read the Bible. So I said, uh, yeah, I don't really know him. And he said, you don't know the Ten Commandments and you're a Christian? And I realized I looked like a fool. So then he, he wasn't done with me, though. He said, uh, so you're a Christian? I said, yes. He said, do you believe in the Bible? I said, yes. He said, have you read it? (laughs) What could I say? (laughs) Uh, no. And then then he said, how could you believe in a book? Why do you believe in a book you've never even read? And you know, you come up with some ridiculous answer like, oh, I believe it based on faith. But that's ridiculous because the Bible says, so then, Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the... Word of God. So you have faith by the Word of God. If you don't know the Word of God, and you haven't read the Word of God, is it real faith? So I was just making up some ridiculous answer, right? But I decided that day, I'm going to go home and I'm, I'm going to read my Bible through for the first time. And I'm never going to have somebody make me, look like a, make me look like such a fool again. So I began to read my Bible through for the first time out of selfishness. Total selfishness. But I can tell you, as I spent time daily, and I was still chewing tobacco. I was sitting there chewing my tobacco while I'd read my Bible, literally. And I was addicted to you know, nicotine and so forth. And so there I am doing this. But day after day, I'm reading this. Day after day, I'm spending that time. And I can tell you what happened. As that happened, I began to have a born-again experience. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know 1 Peter but as I spent, And I'll tell you what, when I began reading it, I didn't even like it. I was just doing it so nobody could ever ask me again, have you read the Bible through? And I would say no. So I could say, oh yeah, I've read it. But as I did it, it changed my life. And I can testify that Peter's right. He knew he was right. He was inspired of God to write it. That you're born again by the Word of God. And so friends, I want to challenge you to spend time in the Word of God. This message was made available by the Waitara Seventh day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit Waitarachurch.org.au.
1: I hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led his people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Port Gibson is a rural area just east of Rochester in New York State. It's a quiet area with many farms that dot the landscape. In the 1840s, there was a farm owned by Hiram Edson that housed some very important meetings and saw some key developments take place. Here, in the quietness of the countryside, let us take a walk down this particular part of memory lane. After the 22nd of October, 1844, the Advent believers were terribly disappointed as their hopes and dreams had been shattered and destroyed. Hiram Edson was no different. He was confused as he believed that his study of the prophecies had been accurate, yet Jesus hadn't come. How would they reconcile this? Did they have the date wrong, as some had suggested? He didn't think so. The dates and calculations had been solid. Did they have the event wrong? Well, they must have because Jesus hadn't come. But what else could it mean? Hiram Edson was walking through a cornfield one day soon after when he realized they had gotten something major wrong. They had been so focused on the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 as it seemed to match the events of 1844 that they had missed Christ's other wedding parable in Luke chapter 12. In Luke it says that we must wait while we wait for the Lord to return from the wedding. He also realized that in Daniel 7, it says that the Son of Man would come to the Ancient of Days rather than to the Earth. This was a revelation. Later, he would study this out with Dr. Franklin B. Hahn and O. R. L. Crozier, and they would solidify their views on this matter they saw that Jesus was not scheduled to come to the earth at the end of the 2300 day prophecy of Daniel 8:14, but rather he transitioned from the holy place to the most holy place in the sanctuary in heaven beginning the work of the investigative judgment It was Owen Russell Loomis Crozier who wrote the first issue of The Day Dawn in March of 1845 that explained the reason for the delay in Jesus' return and preserved the historicist framework of Daniel 8 and 9. Hiram Edson's barn is also the place that Captain Joseph Bates shared the truth of the Sabbath in late 1846. As he was reading his tract, Edson jumped up and said, Brother Bates, this is light and truth. The seventh day is a Sabbath and I am with you to keep it. Crozier and Hahn also accepted the Sabbath and thus this linked those in Western New York who were presenting the sanctuary with those in New England who were teaching the Sabbath. For this reason, this farm has been seen as the theological birthplace of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, for it's where the two pillars of the Sabbath and the sanctuary came together. The blending of these two teachings would form the uniqueness of this new movement. The Sabbath was not just seen as a reminder of creation or as part of the Ten Commandments, but rather in the light of the sanctuary and its eschatological or end time context. In time, Hiram Edson and the other Advent believers would see that their experience in October 1844 was part of Bible prophecy and that their very disappointment itself was further proof that God was leading them. In Revelation 10, it points out that their experience would first be sweet in the mouth and then it would be bitter in the belly and oh, how bitter it had been. The last verse in Revelation 10 admonished them and it echoes to us today, thou must prophesy again. May we take the admonition of the preaching of the unique message of God to heart and go wherever He calls. To view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com
0: This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.